1: Hey, LiveWire is making changes. You may have noticed that we're recording even more shows for your listening pleasure. That means double the chances to see our live show. Visit our website at LiveWireRadio.org, check our live schedule, and reserve your seats. Come see the controlled chaos of a live show. You won't regret it.
2: I can help the next person in line.
3: Good afternoon, my good sir. I would like to sell these books. Uh, weren't you in
2: here twice already?
3: Me? No.
2: (laughs) Hey, Stephanie, isn't this guy the guy from earlier uh, trying to sell books we already rejected?
4: Couldn't be, Jeff. That other guy didn't have a cowboy hat or a fake mustache. (laughs)
3: Oh, yeah, right. See, I'm a different guy selling rare signed copies of great works of literature.
2: (laughs) All right, what the hell, buddy? Let's have a look. Wow. Look at this, Steph. A signed copy of Catcher in the Rye. Wow. Dear Todd. I'm Todd. Dear Todd, catch you later. We'll drink some rye. J.K., stay in school. J.B. Salinger. Spelled wrong. Uh, What do you think, Steph?
4: Not buying it. Oh. What else? Let's see. Uh, Silas Marner by George Eliot. Also signed. Uh Uh-huh. Same Sharpie. Yo, Todd. From one brother to another, enjoy the book. Hang loose and full of juice, George. George George is a great guy. George Eliot was a woman. (gasps) No, had me fooled. She died 130 years ago. Oh. Yeah, I'm not buying it.
2: Jeez. A signed copy of
3: Gideon's Bible, Uh, signed by Gideon him, her, themselves. Not
4: buying it. Man. The corrections by Jonathan Franzen, well la-dee-da, to another proud member of Oprah's book club, see ya at the meeting, Franzo. Right, not buying it. Why? The Diary of Anne Frank signed, really? What?
3: What? I, I didn't read the whole thing. Happy ending though, right? Cause she signed it for me at a Barnes & Noble in Duluth, I swear. Pathetic. Okay, this takes me back. A Million
2: Little Pieces. Signed To a great lover of fiction And then fiction is crossed out And nonfiction is written and underlined Sincerely, James Fry, Xmas 2003 Isn't it ironic that this would be the one signature That I believe
4: is authentic? I'm still not buying it Fine Now this is interesting Dog-eared, well-loved Covered with sketches and lots of notes in the margins And what's that stain? Is that
2: pizza sauce? God, it smells like beer, too It's not even a book it's a program for some show.
4: I'll buy that. It's, it's... Livewire! From the beautiful Aladdin Theater
3: in Portland, Oregon, where we stay inside with a good book on rainy days, like we have a choice, it's Livewire! And now it's the host of Livewire, who accidentally sold her diary to a book buyer. She later found it on the shelf with the How Not To books.
1: Courtney, hi, my show, everybody. This is the second week that we are coming to you from Wordstock, Portland's Festival of the Book. And tonight, our guests are equally as impressive as last week, maybe more impressive. We haven't measured them yet. We will in a moment. We have a favorite from last year's show, actually. The hilarious and charming poet Derek Brown is with (laughs) us tonight. We'll measure him later. Comedian, director, and now author of the comic compendium satiristas, Paul Provenza, is with us tonight. And our musical guest is the woman who brought us Throwing Muses in the 80s, 50-Foot Wave in the Aughts, and now her first memoir, Rat Girl, Kristen Hirsch, is here. But first meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, very dramatic, Shelley McClendon. Our siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as usual, poet Scott Poole. He's the author of Hiding from Salesmen. He will take a single hour, just the hour that you're watching and listening. In that hour, he's going to create something beautiful. At the end of the hour, he'll present us with a poem that encompasses all we've learned during the course of the show. Welcome, Scott Poole. Go write! <laughs> write things! And we can't do any of it without our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton chops. Uh, We are going to have Paul Provenza on the show. Uh, We'll be talking about the nature of satire and comedy. And we have a staff of comedy writers on the show. So we're actually really looking forward to dissecting comedy and satire with him. And we hope that you're looking forward to it, too. Um, Comedy is a a complex thing, actually. And I think as kids, we have an awareness of humor, but we don't really think about it or grasp its power. Because comedy is powerful. I remember the first time I ever realized this was standing in our kitchen when I was in third grade and my mother was yelling at my older brother for drinking her last Pepsi. It's one of the few things she got really upset about. Let me preface this by saying that my mother never yelled at us. Uh, When we were in high school, she was one of those, call me if you're drinking or need to perform neurosurgery without a license or whatever, because I will come and help you. I'm your mom and that's what I'm here for. She was that mom. Uh, And she did actually yell at my brother Scott one other time in high school, and it was the time that he pushed down the tops of 200 of her warm chocolate kiss cookies, essentially giving them nipples. (laughs) I can't give those to people for Christmas. They're obscene. When she did yell, he did the same thing that he did in high school that he did back in third grade. He waited for a pause in the rant. He said something charming and funny, and suddenly she was cackling instead of ranting. And as adults, we're all aware of using humor to diffuse anger, right? It's in books and how-to videos, and I'm pretty sure it's the only reason my Aunt Sandy and Uncle Bob are still married. (laughs) But the first time, I just remember the first time I saw it, it's it looked like magic to me, right? It was the first time I'd ever seen such a clear illustration of how you could use just words to totally change how a person felt. In this case, it was to make a person feel the exact opposite of what she'd just been feeling. So the next time someone tells you comedy's not a powerful art form, you should push in all the tops of the recently baked chocolate kiss cookies and make nipples out of them (laughs) because that'll show them how powerful comedy is. Um, and we'll see later when we talk to the amazing Mr. Paul Provenza. But now, first up, tonight is a poet, a publisher, and a variety show host. He's performed at over 1,500 venues, including the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, CBGBs, and as an opening act for the Decemberists. He created the indie imprint Right Bloody Publishing, and he also created Lightbulb Mouth Radio Hour in Long Beach, California. Please welcome Derek Brown to Livewire. <laughs>
5: The weatherman lives a life of no poetry. He performs his final run through before the regular evening taping, muttering the phrases <clears throat> partial clouds, okay, hail among thunderstorms, high pressure system, got it, a push a push of energy moves into the region. Got it. And his life is control. His life is a table for one. Always able to find a seat at the movies. Tandem bikes made him want to vomit. Somebody always pulling somebody else's weight. His desk at work is dominated by the small dogs in big shirts calendar and a dumb coffee cup. At home, there are no plants. Why take care of something that tries to die? His kitchen is just a place to stand sometimes. Someone he does not know sent him a package so he does not open it. It feels like a book, no thanks. His bed has one pillow. No one believes it, but the weatherman is as happy as he is. But something peculiar happened during the regular evening taping. And we're back now with our AccuWeather forecast. What's going on out there in those wild skies of ours? I'm glad you asked, Leah, because we have some heavy bundling up to do this weekend due to another high-pressure sister pushing its way like a freak caboose. PCP precipitate. I'll pick that up. A strong thunderstorm of brain and blaze of hell pure hell will be falling to the refreshed a harbor for the forgotten forecast can i retake that and that was the day it started the day his words fought their way out of his mouth he walks to work every morning the sky only blue the clouds white the coffee only hot he looks at the picture of the someone he once knew on his desk The day the words took over was the first day he noticed anything small. The picture on his desk used to tell him, I don't need you to be love, I need you to be a solution. And something strange happened. He noticed his coffee mug for the first time, the smooth handle, the stains on the inside lip, the dumb coffee makes me poop slogan. He never thought it was beautiful before that day, but he started to think about beautiful holding devices, and his mind began to exhale after a life of only inhaling. A homeless man outside the studio usually asks him what the weather's going to be like, plays a broken toy piano, old green cut-off military gloves. The homeless man says, hey, give me some inside, brother. I got to find shelter tonight or what? Don't tell me to tune in or I'll eat your mouth. (laughs) And the weatherman tried to summon a sensible response. But all that came out was uh, thunderstrums, a blaze of hell. I don't know what's going on. And he said, ooh, holy moly, it found you. What found me? Oh, the bad weather of words. And you needed it, too. You a big, ugly vase, and all your flowers is dead. The bad weather of words commands us to celebrate, spin around like a battered piñata, and they beat you to bits, but there's still some good candy inside. Notice that you need to bonfire. The bad weather of words tells you to burn like Watts before the riots, when the fire was building inside of people first. So, is a hard brain going to fall? Yes. Well, then I'll find shelter. When I get too wet, I have to go home and change. It was the day the words found the weatherman, his lips wet like nine-volt batteries, his lungs shrank, his breathing turtled because the heart was growing away from its old scuttled shell. The weatherman tried to warm up for the Saturday evening taping, and it all came out as, ladies and gentlemen, the oncoming humidity is going to unbutton every denim blouse and unzip every costume. Ladies and gentlemen, set your windshield wipers to gospel. Hi-yi-yi. Hi, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, the wind tonight is going to be so calm you'll want to whisper back in fake French, I missed you. La cittadine, la cittadine. Saturday night finally ended the way the weatherman had secretly wished it would, like a good poem. Unexpected, warm, quiet It ended like moonlight into the ground So here's to punching holes in the ceiling And waiting for the stars to suck Here's to the bad weather of words finding you To the nails in the black air Being pulled out by a passionate claw hammer The night sky blanketing down upon us In jet black silk and octopus ink Here's to thunderstrums and your oncoming blaze of hell If you're cooking something in your kitchen tonight Slow down See the meal in the pot, notice the pot. Leave the meal in the sauce longer. Let it get tender, look out the window. A high-pressure sister is definitely coming our way.
4: Derek Brown.
1: Derek Brown, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio with music, conversation, and comedy. We're like a great date, but without the awkward sex part. (laughs) Coming up, Kristen Hirsch, Paul Provenza, and Scott Poole. We'll be right back.
4: And now, Marvel Comics presents issue number one of Wolfman vs. The Incredible Hulk. While waiting in line at an all-night donut shop, scientist Bruce Banner, the alter ego of The Incredible Hulk, has a chance encounter with one Lawrence Talbot, also known as The Wolfman.
2: Excuse me, Poindexter, I think I'm next? Ah, uh,
3: I'm sorry, what did you just say to me? I said, I'm next, purple pants. Look you, just back off. You don't want to get me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry.
2: Oh yeah? Well, you don't want a piece of this. You don't know what I
3: don't want. What does that mean? It means maybe I do want some of that. Are you making a pass at me? No, I, I'm, th- I'm threatening you. Hey, don't threaten
2: me, Einstein. Tonight is a full moon and things happen during a full moon. Oh,
3: like what? Like this. Ow. Well, now you've done it. You've made me somewhat angry. Well, just wait a second, because my
2: my teeth haven't quite grown in yet. Sorry, this usually happens a lot faster. I don't know what's going
3: on. Too late for sorry. Now you're in trouble. My belt is really tight, and I've already had to loosen my tie. I think my ears are getting pointy. Let's do this! Wolf, make Hulk smash! And... uh... Oh, wait. Nuts. I lost it. I had a massage earlier today, and it's really hard to stay angry when yeah. you're loose. Oh. Yeah, I just feel...
2: Ah! Oh, Craves, hold on. The moon just went behind some clouds. I don't know what it's I doing out it there. Can you believe this weather? Oh. What
3: happened to our summer?
2: Am I right? Exactly. Anyhow, I don't see any harm. in waiting a few minutes. Is that okay? Ah, it works for me. So, um...
3: Yep. Go through a lot of clothes, huh? Oh, are you kidding me? Totally. And I'm on a budget. I have to buy these things by the gross. So why are the purple? Well, it's really the only color that looks good with my shade of green, you know.
2: I'm a spring. You know, I could tell that just by looking at you. Right,
3: right. Uh, well, and these are dockers, and they're not cheap, but it's, it's worth it for the extra crotch room. Oh, you know, I
2: could use that, too, if you know what I mean. Right, right, for um, uh, transmogrifying. Transmogrifying. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> Hey, look out. <laughs> anyway, oh, here we go. The moon's coming back out. Uh <laughs> Don't you threaten me. I'm going to get
3: really angry this time. Hey, don't you tell me what to do, for I am a creature of the night. You can't control me. me. Oh, man. Actually, this is embarrassing. Could you, could you threaten me? I mean, I kind of stopped being mad when you tilted your head and your ears went up. Yeah. You look like a cute little inquisitive puppy. <laughs> yeah, look, still totally beige. Say oh. something really mean, you know. Oh, of course.
2: So the hound from hell is just naturally going to spout nasty insults. Oh, Man, I I, thought we
3: were finally getting past that kind of stereotyping. Oh, whoa, whoa, easy. I I didn't mean anything by it. I'm just trying to, you know, get things started. I'm sorry.
2: I'm just a little embarrassed. I usually don't have this problem. Um, Oh, here we go. Let me just try this. Um... Barney called and he wants his pants back. Oh, No, well, no. I, I don't think Barney wears pants. I was because of it, the purple. I well, was if he Oh, did, oh you Damn know. it! Um, I'm just awful at insults. You know, I wish we had an anger fluffer or something. Right.
3: right uh, <laughs> uh, we are terrible at this. Well,
2: you generally don't need strong verbal skills
3: when you're gnawing off a guy's tibia. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. No, now that I think of it, I, I feel like Hulk is just a manifestation of my own inability to express my anger in a constructive, proactive way. Oh, you know, I have a guy who can help you with that.
6: Really?
2: No, I ate that guy. Damn. Um, but, you know, I found another guy, and he'll, he'll do. I guess I'll give you his number. That's great. Look, um, Hulk, no more want to crush Wolfman. Yeah, you know the moment's past. Ten percent chance of clouds my ass.
4: Look at this. Just the crewers, sir?
3: Oh, uh, yeah, and uh, Hulk, buy whatever this guy want. Oh, really? Thank you, Hulk.
2: Uh, I would like a bear claw and your left forearm.
3: Ooh, uh, I've, I've heard bear claws are really gross. <laughs> it's like they put in all the stuff they didn't use from the rest of the bear. <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> well, uh, I guess I'll, uh, I'll just have the forearm then. <laughs>
7: <laughs> this guy, this huh? guy.
4: <laughs> Next month, don't forget to pick up issue number two, Dealing With Our Issues. <laughs>
1: Our next guest was already a rock star in her teens. She founded Throwing Muses and signed to 4AD Label when she was just 19 years old. After 16 years with that band, she started making her own music and has since recorded nine studio albums and created a new subscriber based model, Cash Music, to get music to her fans as an alternative to the big record companies. In the past few years, she began touring with a combination spoken word music show and has now published her first memoir, Rat Girl, which takes place over the course of her 18th year. Please welcome Kristen Hirsch to (laughs) Livewire. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you. That was so pretty. <laughs> it was. It was really, it was a lovely theme song for is you. Is that my theme? I guess it is. It's your new theme. How do you Thank feel about you. it? Thank you. You are welcome. That's really cool. Great. <laughs> Great. Um, so, this book is based on a diary that you kept of your 18th year, which was a pretty significant year for you. Uh, that year, you were, you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you, and you found out you were pregnant that year as well. So what was it like for you to actually have to go through that diary with so much detail over the course of the writing of this?
8: It was sort of awful, but then it stopped being awful mm-hmm. when I thought, oh, it's, it's just a story. You know, I lived it, but I lived it 25 years ago, so it, it hardly counts anymore.
1: Right. What? How does it change the way you look at your life when you start looking at it as a story?
8: You realize that you take out the boring and the
1: horrifying, and what you're left with is the the
8: story. Mm-hmm.
1: And this, were there any surprises for you as, you as you were reading through this stuff that you didn't remember at all that had happened? I, I had remembered the whole year as something that I
8: should be ashamed of, and yet in tearing it apart and standing in the, the bubble that is every scene and trying to expound on it and expand it and make it a bubble that anybody could walk into I realized well n- none of it was really my fault and either I was an okay kid or I made myself much more adorable than I actually was
1: <laughs> it'd be interesting I mean having said that to go through more of your life and you have some pretty great vivid explanations of how some of these things happen to you and I wanted to um, when, you were six, when you were 16, you were hit by a car on your bike and you s- sustained a double concussion. And this is actually when music, you'd been playing music, but music really started coming to you at that point.
8: Yeah, it, it seems that what I do is take ambient noise and turn it into vocabulary with which I'm familiar, musical instruments. And that's what my songs are. I don't feel... Particularly responsible for anything musical, any that I I make, um, because as soon as I I step in and I, I have ideas or I tell the song what to do, then it it gets smaller than me, and nobody needs that. It's not universal. It's not special. It's not a high anymore. So really, my whole thrust has been to to shut up and listen and. There's actually something to listen to when I do that
1: and you and so you feel like the this this music is actually just sort of coming from the world it's atmospheric around you, and you just you just sort of have a different filter than other people have
8: yeah, I used to get mad that people weren't listening to it to the point where I was called crazy that you know just because you don't hear it doesn't mean it isn't there. And now I know not to say that anymore, except for just now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I still believe it. I believe Mm. it's in the air, and I believe that it's alive. And I, I experience it as very tangible ever since that car accident.
1: Well, can you read a little bit about that?
8: It was a witch that gave me the double concussion that made me start hearing songs in the first place. A couple years ago, this old witch drove her car into me as I raced to a summer job on my bike. She wasn't a bad witch necessarily, but she wasn't a good witch either. I remember her blank face over the steering wheel about to plow into me like she was on a mission. I pedaled as fast as I could trying to escape her speeding Chevy, but I never made it to work that day. Instead, I flew up into the air. One minute everything was like it usually is, and the next I was flying flying through the air in vivid slow motion, thinking, so this is what this feels like. As the pavement came toward me, time stopped abruptly. I hovered over the street. Tree branches blew in the breeze. I could smell cut grass. Somehow I hung between flying up and falling down. A thought occurred. You're about to hit your head harder than you've ever hit it before, so maybe you should, you know, go limp. I did. As soon as I relaxed my muscles, time sped up and the ground jumped up in the air, crashing into my head. I slid down the street on my face for a while and flipped over. My neck snapped back and my legs twisted up underneath me. The witch and her Chevy were long gone. I tried to unfold myself. Lifting my left leg, I noticed that there was no longer a foot at the end of it. Blood spread across the ground and a deep red puddle pouring into the sewer, I'd never seen blood pour into a sewer before. It looks really cool. (laughs) Then a woman appeared from nowhere and leaned over me. She was wearing mirrored sunglasses. What I saw in her glasses was bizarre. I had no face. The front of my head was hamburger and blood with two blue eyes staring out. Behind the woman's head and my monstrous reflection was a clear blue sky. When I turned away to look for my missing foot, the woman grabbed what used to be my face and turned it toward her. You were hit by a car. <laughs> she spoke loudly and slowly, carefully articulating each word. You're going to be fine. I flashed on seventh grade health class where they taught us what to do in case we ever came upon an accident. We learned to tie tourniquets and perform CPR, how to recognize the symptoms of shock And what happens to the person in the back seat if you keep a crowbar on the dash? (laughs) They also taught us how to talk to the victim. You speak loudly and slowly, carefully articulating each word. You tell them what's wrong, and then you tell them they're going to be fine. You have a crowbar through the middle of your skull. (laughs) You're going to be fine.
1: So it, it was after that accident that it really started that music really started coming to you and and really visiting you until you got it out of you. I read an article in the Guardian um, the u k paper you 're quoted as saying, "I hated the connection between mental illness and art i couldn 't stand that you had to be sick in order to create beauty or confused to create truth. It made no sense. It was a huge relief to be essentially cured so how did being cured, how has that changed your creative process? It hasn't, which proves my point. <laughs> <laughs> because in the book, it felt like when you were struggling through some of those manic episodes, that was really when the music was just really haunting you. So it felt like it was connected to the disease in some way. Did that, did that frighten the... you, the idea of being cured and ha- having that go away? Oh, no, I,
8: I hated music so much. I was fine with all of it going away, but you give bipolar disorder an inch, and it takes ten miles. so if there's a song playing, there're going to be hundreds of songs playing, bumping into each other they 're going to be loud that 's what mania does to everything. But music is not sickness. in fact, sickness gets in the way of the purity of sound that it that it should be so i I spent the last Twenty years arguing with British journalists about that very idea—they, they so badly want to connect mental illness and art—and I refuse to believe that a lack of health could cause beauty.
1: And so, for you now, it's just pleasurable now to create everything music? <laughs> your entire life. No, it's the the actual creative process now oh, is well, just pleasurable. It's
8: creepy. I don't like hearing myself playing next door. I don't like that it gets me up at 4 a.m., and yet I sort of worship the songs, so it's kind of a love-hate or a maybe now a Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs)
1: like-dislike. Yeah, so not, not as strong...
8: Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, the book is stunning. I mean, the, your, your writing um, is just, it's charming and warm and poignant, and it's very different. I think a lot of people are, are fans of that, that sort of genre of the, the rock memoir. And it's different, it's, it's yeah. in there, but. It doesn't
8: read that way. Yeah,
1: it doesn't, it doesn't really read that way. So I, I, yeah, I definitely would highly recommend it. The book is Rat Girl. And Kristen Hirsch. Kristen is going to come back uh, at the end of the show and play a song for us, right? Thanks so much. Kristen Hirsch, everybody. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and laughs, it's like a great date, but without the initial awkwardness and constant internal dialogue about whether or not you're going to end up doing it. <laughs> we'll be right back.
3: Listening to Livewire, the radio variety show for the attention span challenged. If you live in the Portland area, come to all of our live shows at the Alberta Rose Theater. For more information, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by the law firm of Buchanan, Angeli, Altshul, and Sullivan. Proud to support the art of comedy writing by being the butt of lawyer jokes since 2008. Stephen King's The Shining, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Jay Anson's Amityville Horror, classic tales of fear that have terrified generations of readers. And in the tradition of these masters of fright comes the first work in a new genre of literary horror. My First Tale of Terror, a board book written specifically for readers aged 3 to 12 months giving a frighteningly realistic account of the horrors of being a baby. Shockingly terrifying tales of developmental milestones met and milestones delayed.
9: I can
2: recognize my bottle, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it!
3: Your baby will coo with dread as they watch innocent Chloe and Tanner grapple with the developmental tasks of infancy alone.
4: Although my mom's keys are shiny, they don't taste good.
3: Trapped in their helplessness, Chloe and Tanner struggle to free themselves from the forces that oppress them.
4: I was forced to wear a costume that looks like a peapod and then take a nap so that I could get my picture taken. And my growth motor skills aren't de- developed enough to defend myself yet.
3: Unable to separate fiction from reality, your child will shudder with panic at our protagonist's cries for help while being met only with more horror.
4: I can only show affection to familiar adults. Object permanence. But how can something continue to exist when I can't see it? (laughs) I enjoy music, but my only dance moves involve me holding onto the coffee table and bouncing in place.
3: Parents witness your worst fears realized as Chloe and Tanner are compared to other children.
1: <laughs> so what if Chloe can't move a toy from one hand to the other just yet? It's it's okay. College isn't for everyone, you know. <laughs> oh but his father was an early
3: walker and Tanner's barely crawling. Why, Lord, why? No lullaby will be able to rock your precious angels to sleep once they experience the utter fear of the unknown and the nightmare of being doomed forever.
9: My ego is
4: addressing the basic task of trust versus mistrust. And according to developmental psychologist Eric Erickson, if I don't figure that out, I will struggle with it into adulthood.
3: Illustrated by Eric Carle, who has unleashed other tales of holy terror such as The Very Hungry Caterpillar, and Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? Each book comes with a CD of the most terrifying lullabies imaginable, such as Hush, Little Baby, or The Gunman Will Be Able To Hear You and Kill Us All, The Bleeding Walls of Sleepy Town, and... You are my sunshine. I'm your darkness. (laughs) A book so terrifying, so scary, your baby will want to sleep with the humidifier on high. Coming in time for Christmas.
1: Our next guest has had a very successful career as a stand-up comic and actor documentarian and now he's adding author to his list in 2005 he made his directorial debut co-directing the acclaimed documentary the aristocrats with Penn gillette he's been interviewing comics in green rooms at festivals around the world for years now and in june he started doing it for showtime on the green room paul is at wordstock with his first book satiristas Comedians, Contrarians, Raconteurs, and Vulgarians, in which he interviews some of the best satirists and comics in the country, like Bill Maher, Stephen Colbert, Lily Tomlin, and George Carlin, in one of his last interviews. Please welcome the man who may know more about comedy than anyone else in America right now, Paul Provenza.
7: Can I just say, that has been a long time since I heard a real quality object permanence joke.
1: <laughs> so kudos. Right, you. Thank you. That was Shelley McLendon wrote that sketch. She's a psychologist, actually.
7: Oh, object permanence. You know, it's uh, comedy gold.
1: <laughs> it is. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you it's for having great to me have you sure, here. You know
7: what? I'm honored. This is a great show. Oh,
1: thank you. It really, yeah. and,
7: uh, and it's lovely to be here in Portland, which is. <laughs> It's Portland. It's, it's really Portland. It is. It's like, really, it's like everything you hear about Portland. It really is Portland.
1: See? You what did what? we I, tell you, Paul? I, I, but I went
7: hardcore. I went to Whole Foods in Portland.
1: Exactly. Yeah, My so head exploded. Whole, exactly. it, was,
7: it was Portland on 11.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was turned up to 11 at, at the Whole Foods... Um so I wanted to, to briefly just get into your history. You actually attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. I did. Mr. Swankey. I did
7: spend some time there, yes. So
1: how how did you and you and you did and you did a lot of theater.
7: Uh, well, you know, when I started doing stand up, my big inspiration was um uh the late great George Carlin who is uh, um it was a, a great honor to Yeah, let him hear it. It was a, a great honor to get to meet him and to become friendly with him in uh, in his later years. And um you know, when, when it's the George Carlins and the Richard Pryors and the Jonathan Winners and the Robert Kleins of, of that generation who uh, inspire you, stand-up is an art form. You know, I never looked at it as, as anything other than an art form, and uh, all those, those people I mentioned are phenomenal actors in their, in their stand-up work. And um, it didn't even seem to me, I didn't even realize that I was doing something really sort of apparently polar opposite, which it really isn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, I think that you do, you pull from a lot of the same skill, skill yeah, sets. Yeah, and,
7: and, and, well, really, it's interesting because as my, as my development as an actor progressed, and my, you know, that helped my stand-up. And as my stand-up progressed, that helped my acting. And uh, really, they're just, they're really the same. Those who do it well, those who do it really artfully, I mm-hmm. think, Yeah.
1: Well, to, just to get into the book, um, in the book you call this the golden age of satire. Why, uh, it, why do you think that is?
7: Well, it's, it's one of a number of golden ages of satire. You know, when, when, uh, when there's a disconnect, there are certain phases where um, stand-up comedy in particular uh, really underwent a renaissance in terms of being subversive and in terms of being countercultural. You know, the, 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 the first big one really, uh, um, On the Heels of Lenny, On the Heels of Lenny Bruce was in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, which was part of the counterculture. uh, Smothers Brothers. Smothers Brothers, yeah, which uh, begat all sorts of things. Um, National Lampoon came out around then, which uh, spun off into Saturday Night Live, which in its beginnings was very subversive. And, um, uh, and then in the Reagan years In the early Reagan years We had a little bit of a resurgence In satire and, and critical comedy Political comedy and socially critical comedy And then it died down for quite a bit And uh, under Bush it just <laughs> exploded <laughs> As did much of the earth
1: Right. Um, We had Liz Winstead on the show, who was the co-creator of The Daily Show, Mm -hmm. Um, and she talked about how she really feels like the media has has failed us. And so she's seen that it's really comics now who are in this position of having to educate people. Yeah, well, it's I mean, do you feel like that That's do you feel like that's that's a role that comics should play?
7: Well, you know, it's not it's not it's not the objective, but it's definitely a byproduct. Uh, uh, people don't most uh, virtually everybody in the book talks about how really their objective is to get the laugh. That is right. what that is the edge of their canvas. Uh, how they choose to do that is through these ideas and issues, but um, they don't really set out to change people's minds or to make people think or any of that sort of stuff. They set out to just get the laugh in their own way, but it's something else inside them that emerges in that process and uh, um, you know when you look at media first of all we don't know and this by the way happened in the late 60s early 70s as well you just don't trust the media anymore I mean now it's almost in, in fact Andy Borowitz a very funny sat- satirical writer um, talks about it here that, that this time around in this boom of satire the media has become just as worthy a target as politicians and policy has because right. the media has definitely you know dropped the ball. The media is is part of the problem now. They're not presenting the solution. It's actually the grassroots uh, um, media on the internet that's part of the solution. Uh, so the media now is a valid target. And You look at Fox and you look at MSNBC and you look at I mean CNN, which is supposed to be the you know m- most legitimate of all the news outlets. Even they editorialize on every level. Yeah. So so. And everything is spun to within an inch of its life. You know everything you hear, everything you read. Uh, the, the corporatization and marketing has crossed over into journalism to such a degree that really nobody believes any of it. Nobody actually believes any of it. So
1: you might as so well, well get only, your news from a comic. Yeah,
7: and if you look at what if you look at what happens on the on uh, you know in any public forum, everybody's constantly parsing their words. Everybody's couching everything they say. And, Spinning. Um, yeah, but comics are the only ones who will flat out tell you what they believe and what they think whether you like it or not yeah yeah and um you know it's a bit of a sad state of affairs that that's the most uh, you know the most respectable source of truth we have but it is in fact a source of truth and not even and a lot of it is as much opinion as everything else is but a it's funny and b it it goes to places that journalism academia can't even go to anymore because everybody's so strangled by by so many different uh, forces
1: well, it's, it's interesting. I wanted to go back to, you said, and it, it happened over and over again in this book, comics just kept saying, I don't care about changing people's minds, I just want the laugh. Right. They just said it over and over again. These people who, you know, Jon Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Bill Maher, Will Durst, these, these political satirists who clearly have a, their own point of view are saying that. But it was interesting in George Carlin's interview to me because he said that to you just like everyone else did. He said, This is for me, it's for no one else. I don't want to change anybody's mind. But then he told you very proudly, very specific stories about people's minds that he changed, and fathers and sons who had who had watched, you know, his show together and who were finally able to talk about things. Right. So it felt to me like I, I just felt like, are these guys lying to themselves a little bit? Do they, is there part of themselves that wants to change people, people's minds, but don't want to invest anything in that?
7: I don't think that they really do set out to change people's minds. I think that they have no choice. Roseanne Barr puts it really well. She says, I just get this voice in my head that says, must say this. <laughs> And, and she says and I f- try fighting it and I can't and I say it <laughs> and, yeah and, and that's really what it is it's almost a pathology with a lot of these people in terms of telling the
1: truth yeah um, just before you go you said something really interesting in the book oh, I'm not going I'm staying um, here now <laughs> comedy is the only performing art form where the crowd gets to determine its existence can you explain that Yeah, it's a little, of,
7: a little bit of an existential dilemma. There's two fascinating things about comedy as an art form. The first is that, that the audience generally gets to determine if it even exists. You know, if you hear a crappy song, you don't go, well, that's not a song, it's just a crappy song. If you see an, an awful painting, you go, it's not a painting, go, it's a crappy painting. Yeah. But if you see comedy, that doesn't make you laugh. You go, it's not comedy. Yeah. I want to know who the hell gave you that right. <laughs> Uh, And the other thing that I find really interesting about it and what makes it a very complex art form is that um, uh, in any other art form, you are encouraged and appreciated and respected for covering the gamut of human emotion from A to Z. But comedy is often relegated to only concerning itself with A through M. Well, it's when you go through A to Z and you start to make an audience feel things and think things and react in different ways as well as laugh where it gets really, really interesting as an art
1: form. Yeah, and well, and you spoke to a lot of people who do that, I think, in the book. And so it's a wonderful book. And how many, how many people did you interview for it? Uh,
7: well, the original draft was about 1,400 pages. Uh, <laughs> there are 70 people in the book.
1: Yeah, and including George Carlin you interviewed a week before he died. I just
7: want to say that the the whole book springs from Dan Dion's astonishing portraiture. Dan Dion is a brilliant photographer. Uh, He eschews the traditional comedian photography where, you know, do something wacky, you know. And he really tries, he treats comedians like jazz musicians. He treats them like artists. He tries to find... So his work is very evocative and that's what I tried to do in the interviews they're not interviews per se, they're more conversations I, I wanted them to be as evocative as his photography was so the whole, the whole thing is sort of uh, an attempt at, at an artful conveying of the artistry of these people.
1: I think you succeeded
7: Well thank you very much <laughs>
1: The book is Satiristas, Paul Provenza, everybody Thank you That was Paul Provenza, and you're listening to LiveWire Radio, like an entertainment variety pack, but with none of the sucky flavors. (laughs) And now it's time for the (laughs) audience haiku. We have asked our audience tonight to expound on three subjects in the form of haiku, comics, novel ideas, and reading in bed. And Faces for Radio Theatre have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Ralph Huntley. We're also going to have some very special haiku readers tonight. Uh, Tonight's Audience Haiku is brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Ranger IPA, now in bottles and draft. New Belgium sent their beer rangers all across the country to see what people wanted. And what they kept hearing was, can you create a beer that makes me invisible so I can sneak on to the next space shuttle? And when they said probably not, the next thing they kept hearing was, "Oh, then more hops would be nice." So now you have Ranger IPA from the good folks at New Belgium. Thanks, New Belgium. And now, audience haiku.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, from the audience, to read her haiku, and please don't sing it, but say it to her. You can't sing it because we'll have to pay for it. But please say, "Happy birthday to Eve." Happy birthday. And now she will read her haiku.
1: Uh, maybe Jewish Goth.
4: Being famous for writing novels is someone better than for crime
3: And now please welcome writers Steve Elliott and Amy Bender. Could I uh
2: could I get some disco?
4: I could not convince Amy Bender to write one,
2: so I did for her.
1: It just couldn't quite uh, summon up the haiku, you know, spark. But I'm going to read one by Bob. And um, how about shrill and mystical at the same time? I can't sleep either. I can make shadow puppets from your book lights glare. (laughs) Stephen Elliott and Amy Bender. Fantastic job, audience, on the Audience Haiku! Please welcome Kristen Hirsch back to the stage.
10: You know how it feels when the wheel world encroaches, rubbing elbows with the unemployed. At you. You're so beautiful, you're so Amen. Amen. is your best friend What's your, What's your dirty answer? What's your dirty answer? What's your dirty answer? My fantasies are unlived history You know what it's like when mistakes go unmade It was beautiful It was you I'm giving up Sex is your best friend What's your dirty answer? What's your dirty answer? What's your dirty answer? Your dirty answer? Oh, I don't judge me But I just watch them Until it's time to look away I wanna look away now Somebody's coming It's not my fault, you don't love me It's not my fault It's not my power you don't love me When I'm drunk I'm white, I'm so tired I'm red, I'm so tired Wire, carry me, turn it away, carry me, turn it away.
1: As promised, he's been working very hard for the last 56 minutes to help us digest all that's happened in the last hour. Please welcome back Scott Poole.
9: What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole I learned it must be so hard to branch out if you're the wolf man. It must be so hard not to be in charge of your own life. Plus you have to wear a flea collar. See, the moon is full like the weatherman tried to tell you, but he was having some sort of high pressure nervous breakdown where he was reciting poetry and all he said was rippity dip dip foldy flam bam jib, jib bop bop yeah. But you didn't care. You didn't feel like killing random people that night. You were kind of tired. Maybe you just scratch a couple people casually. (laughs) Maybe you just wanted to sell your books back at Pell's. Maybe get a coffee. And you're covered in fur to top it all off. You have no chance of selling those crappy books back. But you're the wolf man. You figure you can swing this. Before they say they won't buy any of the 16,432 books, it took you a good hour to pull in on hand trucks with the help of several friends and the mummy who wasn't doing anything, like usual. And people were staring because, well, you're completely covered in fur and people can't decide whether you are Chewbacca or the Wolfman or they want to get an autograph or worry if their tibia is going to get gnawed on. You didn't want to do it, but you eat Chaz, the book stalker, who attended the Royal Academy of Art figuring this might give you some pull and then as everyone is kind of shocked because they've never seen a fellow human being become lunch before especially because you brought out some bread and some lettuce and some white cheddar and some wasabi mustard to go with it you figure they're just going to let this one pass to get you out the damn door before you start munching on the goth kids in the coffee shop and they start opening the cash register and you see a can of cores bounce off your chest Oh, crap, the silver bullet. I guess that counts, too. Then there you are, naked in pals, which isn't that unusual, but you're covered in Chaz's blood this time. This is when Wolfman is truly screwed, when he realizes that although he is a child of the night, if only he could tell a joke, he might work his way out of this and sell some books. Thank you.
1: Cool, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for coming
3: out. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Derek Brown, Paul Provenza, and Kristen Hirsch. The mutton chops were Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Paul Evans. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Buchanan, Andrelli, Altschul, and Sullivan, fiction associates the falcon art community and willamette week additional funding provided by the regional arts and culture council the oregon cultural trust the james f and marion l miller foundation and listeners such as you find people Livewire is created and produced by kate sokoloff and robin tannenbaum technical production by jim Grundberg from mississippi studios recording engineering by jonathan Newsom. house sound by paul o'brien and lighting by Rhiannon betts the faces for radio theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath, and siren of sound Pat LiveWire's house poet is Scott Poole. This show's guest writer and performer was Shelley McClendon of The Liberators and Sweat. Production management and lighting by Drew Flint. Stage management by Stephen Alexander. Theme by Courtney Mondreli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgam Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Cassell Communications. Big thanks tonight go to Greg Netzer and the entire Wordstock staff. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes, turning the page on another chapter of Wordstock History. Stay
0: tuned for the index, some footnotes, and a very exciting bibliography. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed